Welcome to Excess Returns, where we focus on what works over the long term in the markets. Join us as we talk about the strategies and tactics that can help you become a better long-term investor. Justin Carboneau and Jack Forehand are principals at Validia Capital Management. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Validia Capital. No information on this podcast should be construed as investment advice. Securities discussed in the podcast may be holdings of clients of Validia Capital. All right, this is our final episode of 2020. We wanted to use it to share some of the biggest lessons we've learned from the interviews we've done throughout the year. We were fortunate to interview 14 of the smartest investors we know during the year, and there were many great lessons in each of them. For this year-end episode, we went through the five most watched episodes of the year and picked our favorite lesson from each one. Here are our favorite lessons from our most popular podcast of the year. Our fifth most popular episode was with newfound research founder Corey Hofstein. We spoke to Corey about his excellent research paper, Liquidity Cascades. Ben Graham talked about the idea that the market is a weighing machine over the long term, even if it can be a voting machine in the short run. But things like passive index flows and option dealer positioning may have fundamentally changed the way the market operates, which makes the path to the weighing machine a much more rocky one. Corey discussed this idea and how the market has changed in our interview with him. Just to set the stage and kind of the backdrop, there's a bunch of trends that have kind of gone on in the market, particularly over the last decade or so. And it seems like in your paper, this liquidity cascades paper, there's really three main things that have changed in the market um, that you tried to tie together. The first is that the the Federal Reserve policy and the unprecedented Federal Reserve action since 08. Um, The second is the rise of passive investing, which, as we know, has become a lot more popular. And the third is this increased use of options and derivatives. And so you sort of bring this all together in your paper with that initial figure. I think it's figure one. And we'll put a link. We'll put a a, we'll show this in the podcast. But you call it the market incentive loop. And so I was wondering if you could just kind of at a high level start working your way through that, because that'll help us kind of peel back the onion and get into these things in a little bit more detail. Absolutely. And, And maybe to set a little context at the table a bit. A lot of this research was inspired by March 2020 and a lot of the questions I was getting from advisor clients of mine who were simply saying markets continue to just seem to be so weird, so disconnected from reality. Is there something there? And so for me, when I, I, being a quant, there wasn't evidence before that I could really identify that markets were truly statistically different because a lot of what quants are looking for, right, is that depth of evidence, evidence occurring over time to try to find that difference. And when I started to sort of survey a lot of the narratives that were out there, it tended to be more of a breadth of evidence, a lot of coincidental information occurring at the same time. And it's a very different way of viewing the world. But really, to your point, there were three main narratives. It was this idea of a, you know, depending on the language you want to use, a Fed-supported or Fed-manipulated market that the Fed had ultimately moved and central banks around the world had ultimately moved from um, a referee to a key player within the market and their actions are actually having uh, knock-on effects in the way investors are behaving. The second to your point is about the rise of passive, which has both sort of macro and micro impacts, uh, depending on how we want to go into it. And that one, really, I got to give a ton of credit to Mike Green at Logica, who has really been on the vanguard, no pun intended there, of that sort of argument about passive. And then again, this idea of of um, the role of derivatives hedging, structured products, the growth of the options market. And again, guys like uh, Chris Cole, uh, Veneer Bansali, Ben Eifert, Jem Karzan have really been, you know, advocating these these ideas. So um, I really want to stress this is these are not core new narratives that I've developed. 
Um, these are just things that are, were all out there. And so what was really interesting to me about doing this research is that a lot of times the parties who were proponents of one particular narrative had very high conviction in that idea. And again, a lot of the evidence for those ideas was very circumstantial. What was really important to me as I started to piece this all together was that even if our conviction in any of these individual ideas isn't particularly strong, all of these ideas in conjunction seem to put the same pressure on the market. So the way the loop sort of worked, to go back to your original question after my three-mile tangent there, is that it sort of, it doesn't really have a beginning or an end. It arguably sort of gets accelerated when the Fed steps into the market and through their policy, as well as just their general narrative, serves to explicitly suppress interest rates, as well as suppress volatility, uh, again, through that sort of narrative economics uh, avenue. By suppressing interest rates, they have uh, the implied action is that investors have to move up the risk curve to hit their returns. Then the question becomes, well, how do they ultimately make that investment decision? Well, in a market where the risk-free rate is lowered, things like fees all of a sudden become more important. And so there's going to potentially be a move to passive for regulatory and fee pressures and some performance chasing that's going on. And that move to passive can ultimately create potential distortions, which we can get into. Um, they also are going to start piling into what I would call volatility contingent trades. So these are going to be trades where they're trying to sort of have their cake and eat it too, where they want to buy equities, but do so in a risk managed way. All of this sort of keeps pushing investors into a corner, sort of the left tail. Um, that ultimately isn't a problem until there's an exogenous shock, something like the Corona crisis, where suddenly there's a large force to unwind. At the same time, a lot of liquidity disappears from the market because high frequency traders become capital constrained. While that occurs, all of these volatility contingent strategies become liquidity takers. And when there's no liquidity there, that helps drive up volatility, that helps put market pressure uh, in a negative direction. And unless the Fed steps in or there's some other sort of release valve, it just sort of becomes a pro-cyclical pain point. Um, ultimately, the Fed did step in in March, 2020 in a very big way. Uh, and arguably has sort of kicked the cycle off anew in, into the next couple of years. So that is sort of the general idea that none of these ideas are, are independent. They all sort of work in concert to create a more unstable market than we've really seen in the past. Our fourth most popular episode was with our friend Tobias Carlyle of the Acquires Funds. When we spoke to Toby earlier in the year, the coronavirus crisis had just begun, and many investors were worried about value investing after its major fall in the wake of the crisis. But Toby helped keep things in context by explaining why things weren't as different from history as many investors might think. Here's Toby discussing why value investors need to be comfortable with the idea of investing in a crisis. Switching gears for a second, I wanted to ask you about COVID-19 and sort of some of the arguments that value is broken, but breaking them down into short-term arguments and long-term arguments. And one of the interesting questions I've gotten that I had a hard time answering, to be honest, is... When, when we look at COVID-19, all of us that are value investors are looking at the price relative to something, whether it's earnings or cash flows. And, and all of those somethings occurred before what has now become a breaking point. So whatever those earnings were, whatever those cash flows were last year, whatever it is after that breaking point is going to probably be really, really different. And so the question is, how do you distinguish you know, the, the companies that really are attractive values when maybe we can't rely on those past fundamentals as much as we, you know, can in a normal time? Yeah, that's a really good question. And uh, I don't have a really good answer for it other than I don't know that this is 
any different to what we always do. Like we're always buying something in a crisis and it's usually it's more specific to the company. And the reason that you get this chance to buy it is because there's this massive uncertainty. People just don't know what the next quarter or two look like. And so for value guys, like that's business as usual, right? You just get to go in and buy these things before you find out what the answer is. But you've got an idea on a TTM historical basis what the business is capable of. You've done some work on the balance sheet. So yeah, they can survive. They generate free cash flow under normal circumstances, clearly the next quarter or two. You know, anybody who does a DCF valuation can tell you how important the front month year or the front years are to the valuation. Like not very, right? It's, it's all like in the term. 5% or something like that. Yeah. yeah. It's, mm -hmm. it's, it's not really relevant at all. So the question is, can they survive? But as a value guy, you've already done that work too, right? You've looked at the balance sheet. You've got an idea. Coming in at number three is our interview with Wes Gray, the founder of Alpha Architect. We've always been believers here in using value composites. We like the idea of not betting on any one individual value factor and spreading our bets, but all of us can fall into the trap of thinking the way we do things is the only right way. Wes helped us see that in our interview with him. Here's Wes on why the benefits of a value composite may have more to do with quality than using multiple factors and how investors can get similar benefits using certain individual investment factors. I want to shift gears for a second and ask you a little bit about the construction of an actual value strategy. So, you know, your, sure. your first step when you're building a value portfolio is how do you represent value? And there yeah. seems to be two camps on this. You know, one camp mm -hmm. is people who think they've found a metric that is better than the other metrics. And so they yeah. build their portfolio around that. And then sure. you've got another group who say, I can't really identify the best metrics, so I'm just going to yeah. use all of them. And, and yeah. I know you fall into the first camp um, with yeah. EBIT to EV, but I'm wondering sort of your thought process on that and, and how you come about selecting that as the metric. Yeah, so, so we don't fall into any camps. What we do is we wanna understand what we own and why, right? So, so sipping into any investment process, I wanna make sure that I understand what the hell I'm trying to achieve in the first place and what are the financial economics that make that so, right? So, and then we can go talk about back testing and all this stuff, right? So I, I'm all about first principles. Before we do any back testing, let's talk about what makes sense and why, right? So that, that's, that's what I am. I'm, I'm not a silo. I'm not a combo ensemble guy. I'm everything. I just want to do what makes sense and what helps me achieve uh, our goal uh, in the simplest way possible. Because the more leverage you get a pull, the more likely you're becoming overconfident and, you know, overthinking it and becoming too much of a quant. Um, so why or, or what, what is the main issue very specific to the value metric uh, horse race, which we wrote papers about, right? So I'm very familiar with obviously the horse race. You can run all the different horses of like cash flow to price, earnings to price, gross profits to price, whatever book the price and then oh if you combo them you get this or that well the issue is it's an apples to oranges competition when you do that for for example a lot of people don't understand that the embedded factor dynamics of value metrics book to market in particular is strongly negatively correlated with quality right income statement metrics or cash flow metrics are actually strongly positively correlated with quality, right? So if I'm gonna run a competition of book to market against book to market plus frankly anything that has to be correlated with quality, 
and we already know in sample that quality has a positive, positive expectation, well, no shit the combo is going to outperform the silo. But is it because it was a combo or was it because you were comparing a multi-factor process to a silo process? A more important test of marginal contribution would be let's compare book to market plus quality plus size plus negative screening plus whatever other multi-factor components that you're adding to this overall investment process. And now let's compare that against that same overall arching process with the combination value metric. And I have yet to see anyone show to me that once we control for the different factors that you were doing, that combination metrics in the context of value specifically add enough marginal benefit to outweigh the questions of why the hell do you have book to market in your valuation process in the first place? Because it makes no damn sense, which is the camp I'm in. Because no amount, again, going back to first principles, um, no amount of Eugene Fama and backtesting can convince me that book to market captures the earnings power of Google, right? And, and nowadays everyone mentions this point because it's so obvious. Like you, when you're value investor, go back to like security analysis, the goal is how to identify the earnings power of this firm. Book to market does not measure anything related to the earnings power of a firm outside of insurance companies and financial firms, right? What measures the earnings power of a firm? How about operating income? Revenues minus COGS minus SGNA, right? Any idiot who's ever ran a business realizes, well, yeah, that's a pretty good indication of what this thing actually earns. Like Alpha Architect's a good example. We have zero book, right? We own like a few chairs in my garage, but we have EBIT. So why would I even, why would I include book in my value ensemble if it makes no damn sense from a financial economic standpoint. Um, and, and so, and, and of course, when you empirically view it correctly and you do apples to apples comparison of like combos, you know, given you're controlling for quality and negative screen, all these other things, you know, they don't add value. You're just adding noise or indirectly measuring something that you think is adding value, but it's not. And, and, it's just, and what people get confused is if you just mathematically, if you combine two variables with high expected returns and non one correlation, guarantee, and you know this because you know the in sample results, the sharp ratio will mechanically always improve, right? But just because you take two random things that have in sample high expectation mean with zero or non one correlation, that doesn't mean you should pull them all together just because it back tests better, right? And so we, when we want to bake our cake or try to understand our investment process and what are we actually trying to do here, we probably want to understand what's going into the cake as opposed to just saying, oh, that's a pretty cake. Let's eat it. Because what if someone baked the turd in that thing, right? Like it looks good, but does it taste right? No. Like, so we want to focus on fundamentals and build systems that make sense from like a first principle standpoint. Um, so long-winded way of saying it is I could go either way, but in this particular context, it makes no sense to me. Our second most viewed interview is with Kai Wu, who's the founder of Sparkline Capital and an expert in machine learning. Many investors have attributed the underperformance of value stocks in the past decade to the outperformance of the technology sector. 
But Kai showed us that the problem is much broader than that. He explained why disruption, intangible assets, and monopolies have all been significant headwinds for value. And he helped us understand how to use machine learning to measure them. In this excerpt from our interview, Kai discusses his approach to uncovering and measuring and looking at disruption. That if value has underperformed in the past 13 years, it must be because something's changed. And it must be because perhaps, you know, these technology stocks and the rise of, you know, the fangs have disrupted somehow um, the value style. But it turns out that at least when looking specifically at the mega cap tech names or at sectors, it doesn't explain the problem. So this kind of got me thinking, well, what's, what are these industry classifications actually doing? Um, and it's kind of funny because, you know, Fang has five letters, has five names. It turns out that only one of those names is actually an IT stock, Apple. The other four are not. You have Amazon, it's discretionary, and then you have three communication stocks. And by the way, if you look at those industries, sure, Amazon is a consumer discretionary stock, but so are the brick and mortar retailers that is disrupting. And in information technology, yes, Apple is innovative, but there are plenty of legacy companies that have been around for multiple cycles still sitting in the IT index. So my thesis coming in after looking at these data was perhaps we're missing something. Perhaps the industry classification schemes um, that um, are so widely used across the industry are not really capturing the full picture. And it doesn't, and it makes sense because look, the, there are a lot of problems with classifications. The most obvious one is that they're binary, right? Tesla can either be an auto company or it can be a tech company. It can't be both. Amazon has AWS. Well, that's too bad because it's a retail company. So that is a huge problem. And, um, and uh, it's also not dynamic. It doesn't change through time. So as companies evolve their business models, if a traditional company were over time to become more innovative and more disruptive, um, that wouldn't show up. So we need a new, a new tool. And that's where I kind of dusted off some of the work I've been doing in AI and machine learning. Um, so I am kind of a power user, I guess, of natural language processing, um, which is the technique used to take unstructured data, which is most data, um, you know, text, audio, images, in my case, text, and extract information from it for the use of quantitative uh, models. Um, and one technique in particular became pretty useful for this exercise, um, which is topic modeling. So any textual document can be viewed as a mixture of different topics. So for example, if the Wall Street Journal ran an article on Apple and it talked about the supply chain, the labor practices, and perhaps really a new product launch maybe, um, those are three topics that are being discussed. So I actually have a chart, I think it's pretty cool. Um, I think it's exhibit 12, 10, no, sorry, exhibit 12 in the value paper. Um, where I, I call it the, the disruption meta-narrative, where I'm able to take all the different words that appear in news documents, financial filings, earnings calls, and cluster them in like a two-dimensional projection um, next to each other. And it's super interesting because you find that words align themselves according to disruption. So you have e words that are talking about e-commerce or mobile, cloud computing, cybersecurity, AI, and these things all sit next to each other in this, in this projection. And then you have non-disruptive words, you know, off to the side. And the confluence of all these things is what I call the disruption meta-narrative. And what I'm able to do is go through all these documents for all companies and look at how exposed each company is to this narrative. And I effectively score each company, say from negative one to one on how disruptive they are. For the sake of simplicity for this paper, I just uh, reduced that to a binary classification. In other words, either you are disruptive or you're not. And you know, this is where you can kind of see the 
overlap, but not perfect correlation between industries and disruption. Like it turns out, for instance, that most IT companies are somewhat disruptive and not many financials are. With that being said, there are still 20% of financials that are disruptive and 20% of IT companies that are non-disruptive. So you, you found, you were basically able to isolate within industries how much disruption was occurring within that industry and then look at value sort of in that context. I mean, the, the disruption classification is distinct from industries, but just as a way of kind of cross-tabulating how um, similar or different it might be, I looked within industry to see what percentage of names are disruptive, but the actual technique used to produce the one zero score um, as being classified as disruptive or not, had no information as to what industry companies were. Did, did you look at this on the long side as well? So you, you would think, you know, given what's gone on in the past decade, you know, there, there's a lot of different ways to classify maybe growth type companies, but this seems like a really interesting way to do it. It's, it seems like this would perform very well. You know, if you were using this on the long side to try to select your portfolio of, of stocks, did, did you look at it that way as well? So glad you brought that up. Exhibit 15 um, shows the performance of some of the sub themes. Um, and so this is on the long side. So I have cloud computing, robotics, AI. Look, if you want, if you or your clients want me to build a portfolio for them of growthy, um, you know, high tech names, we can do that. And the cool thing is you can do it without hiring to have, having to hire analysts to actually comb through all these things. It's all automated. It's all, you know, completely objective going through saying which companies are actually um, doing stuff in these different spaces. And then what I can do is I can aggregate it. Um, to what I call the disruption meta-narrative, where I take all these sub-themes, combine them into one broader theme, and yeah, the performance of that has been phenomenal. Of course, with the benefit of hindsight, right? If you were sitting there in 2010, would you know that um, e-commerce would take over the world? Maybe, maybe not. Um, obviously, it's easy for us to sit here 10 years later and be like, yeah, that would, you know, of course. Um, but that being said, if someone wanted to say, I think my portfolio is underexposed to growthy names, and not just kind of the traditional growth names defined as like, oh, you know, one year increase in like earnings per share, but growth names as defined by being in these kind of themes, these baskets of um, disruptive technologies, then yeah, this would be a really interesting way of doing that. You may not have looked at this, but does it look really different in terms of if we, if I was using more traditional growth metrics, metrics, if I was using, you know, sales growth or earnings growth, does what you come up with in a disruptive portfolio look very different than that? Or does it have pretty high overlap? It's much higher octane because it, it is, it is kind of explicitly focused more on, uh, you know, specific themes, um, disruptive technology themes, as opposed to companies can grow their earnings through, you know, just like blocking and tackling just traditional channels. Um, and they would also show up in the growth index, but wouldn't show up here. Our most viewed podcast of the year was with Jim O'Shaughnessy of O'Shaughnessy Asset Management. Jim offered many great investing lessons in the interview, but our favorite part had nothing to do with investing. Jim has successfully raised three children who have gone on to pursue very different and diverse paths in life. And he shared his most important lesson from that with us. Here is Jim talking about his idea of focusing on raising good adults. Yeah, speaking of learning, I wanted to switch gears for the last couple of questions. And I wanted to ask you about parenting. Um, you, know, you were nice enough to invite me to your office for lunch last year. And you know, one of the things that struck me about the conversation is I don't think we talked about investing or factor investing at all. Right. I, think, you know, I think pretty much we covered other topics the whole time. And this was one of the most interesting topics for me. And you know, it, it strikes me that you, know, you have three children. And I, one is a CEO of an asset management firm. One, I believe, is a stand-up comedian. And one, I believe, is a children's book author. And Correct. so clearly, you haven't guided your kids in any way. 
And, you know, Patrick talked when you had him on your podcast, you talked about how you had the bookshelf and, you know, you always would just point him there whenever he needed anything. And so yeah. I'm wondering, you know, I have a one-year-old and a five-year-old, and so I can obviously use all the help I can get right now. <laughs> so I wanted to just ask you if you had any tips based on your experience in parenting that you might give me. Sure, of course. Actually, I do. Um, I was just talking about this with another young dad um, uh, just a few days ago. Um, so my wife and I were very lucky in all sorts of respects, but we got married very young. We were 22. And so we decided, well, okay, we're crazy. We got married when we were 22. Let's have kids young. So Patrick was born when we were 24. And um, my wife and I talked at great length about, okay, so we're going to be parents. What, what kind of parenting style should we use? What, what should we embrace? And through our conversation, it became very clear to both of us that what was most important for us was as best as we could affect our kids, because that's something else that is another conversation. They're, they're affected by lots of folks other than you. Uh, but our goal was that at the end of the day, they were great adults. Okay? So that sounds, you know, almost trite, right? But if you think about that, if you make that your baseline, my goal is to raise great adults. That precludes you from all sorts of uh, behaviors that without that goal, you would probably engage in. So you want to raise great adults? You never say to that child, because I said so, because I'm big and you're little, because you're living in my house. That's not going to raise a great adult. That's going to raise somebody who kind of uh, is uh, very conformist and doesn't ask questions. And I found the greatest gift in life is the ability to always say, why, why, why? And so you, you can't do things that come naturally to us as human beings, right? Um, and, you know, when you get frustrated, so I have two grandkids now, Patrick's kids, who are six and, and four, adore them. They're over here all the time. And, and I, it's, it's great seeing Patrick and Lauren, his wife, kind of embracing that same idea, that their, their goal is to raise great adults. When you do that, it precludes you from doing all sorts of behaviors that I think are bad. Again, I'm not you know, Jack, you're going to raise your kids the way you're going to raise your kids. But if you think about it and, and look at, okay, so who succeeds and who fails? People succeed who are curious, who are not afraid to ask questions, and who continue to search for other questions as things come up, right? So, and, and are not just like, as when I was on Patrick's podcast, I pointed him to the bookshelf, and it's true, I did. This is pre-Google, right? I, I guess I'd point him to Google now. But um, what, it, what it engendered, I think, I think if my three kids were sitting here and you asked them, it, I think, engendered a real deep curiosity and a voracious um, desire to learn and know things. And so... You're absolutely right when you mentioned their three occupations. I never once suggested to any of my children, including Patrick, that they should be interested in what I did 
um, investment management, finance, ever. Because I grew up in a family that had a big family company and it was in the oil business. And boy, my uncle, he really wanted me to be in the oil business. <laughs> and he kind of took it as a personal affront that I was more interested in the stock market. And I loved him and he me, spent a lot of time with him. And, and finally we were out at dinner and he was making yet a pitch yet again for why I needed to come and work for the company, the family company. And I finally looked at him and I said, Uncle John, I love you. And I love the fact that you love oil. I don't love oil. I love the stock market. If I could be really helpful to you in that, I would love to do it. And he got a big smile on his face finally. And he's like, okay, you stuck with it. He goes, I was just going to keep chipping at you and keep punching you until I figured out, no, nope, he's just not going to give in to me, right? So that was one of the lessons I learned was raise your children in so that they can pursue their own uh, passions, pursue their own desires and knowledge, and, and you'll get a mixed bag, right? So Patrick didn't read what, well, I wonder if he's ever read all of my books. I doubt it. <laughs> I, I le and let's be clear here. I read his book, um, but I'm joking, obviously. Uh, but he became interested later in life, and that was wholly on his own. It was not because I wanted him in, in finance. It was not because I suggested that that be a good idea for him. That was Patrick, right? And what you see is, uh, with Patrick now is that's Patrick. That isn't Jim. That's Patrick. And he, I'm immensely proud of him, right? And I love working with him. But that's because he invested all of his life growing up in learning and doing all of those things. I'm equally proud of my middle daughter, Kate who's got uh, a, uh, a great uh, middle grade fiction book out right now. Um, and my daughter, Lael, who is a stand-up comedian. Um, you know, that's a, that's a boy, you, you, you want a, a really scary profession? Mm -hmm. Stand-up comedian. I mean, because we who invest people, people's money, you know, we're judged every day, right? How do we do today? Wrong way to measure, but there it is. Um, stand-up comedian? Like, I've set my daughter Lael's actually here um, and she's visiting uh, for a while. Uh, but I've said to her, you know, I've made probably by this time thousands of speeches to huge audiences and I would be petrified trying to do even five minutes to make people laugh. I mean, that is brave <laughs> and she's hysterical. So, I, I love that my kids have all pursued their own passions, and I think that they got there by just us living by that real simple rule, a very simple guideline which precluded all sorts of behaviors and required others, right? So don't just say, uh, you know, Dad, what's the airspeed velocity of an autoladen swallow? Always answer African or European <laughs> so that they're going to look it up, right? Um, and, and then... Let, listen to your children. Again, sounds really trite, but when, when our kids wanted to do something or not do something, it wasn't enough for them to come in and say, daddy, mommy, I want X, right? Um, I'll use Patrick as an example. So Patrick played chess as uh, a youth. I always joke that he was an incredible, and he really was an incredible chess player, and then puberty hit. And then, you know, all bets are off the girls, not chess. Um, but he also was taking karate when he was a kid. And 
he came to me one day and said, Dad, yeah, um, I, think I, I think I don't want to take karate anymore. Really, why? Because I don't want to. And I'm like, that's not a good, that's not a good reason. So I'm, I'm fully willing to listen to you. And when you can come in and tell me in a reasonable manner the points why you don't want to do this anymore, I'm willing to listen. And he got upset. He was six or seven. <laughs> so, of course. But he came back after thinking about it. And he had a really great argument. I don't remember the specifics of it now. But he had a cogent, reasoned argument for why he wanted to stop. And I was like, okay, you're done. And so when, when, you, when you encourage that in your kids, Jack and, and Justin, it, it makes them more robust, right? It makes them more anti-fragile, if you will. Um, because at the end of the day, if, if you are forced to you know, come up with great reasons for why you want to do something, guess what you do? You spend a lot of time thinking about that. And you spend a lot of time kind of going through the pros and cons. And, and you know, I think that that finds better adults. So that, and, and, and be very, uh, my last thing, uh, Jack, would be be incredibly patient. <laughs> because, you know, and, and remember what you did. Thanks to everyone who took time to listen to us this year. We look forward to hopefully bringing you some more great interviews in 2021. We wish you and your family a happy and healthy new year.